Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. From Romulus and Remus to its infamous fall, the once, quote, small, ordinary town of Rome came to define empire and change the world forever. British scholar, television host, and author Mary Beard has made mining the history of that empire her central work. Beard is a classics professor at Cambridge and the author of SPQR, A History of Ancient Rome. She spoke at Town Hall Seattle on September 19th, thanks to Sonia Harris for our recording. Please note, the music playing faintly under Mary Beard in the beginning of this recording is not intended to jazz up her talk. It was an oversight at Town Hall that is caught early on in the talk. Here, Town Hall Seattle's Katie Sewell introduces Mary Beard. Good evening, everyone. Uh, I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Town Hall's program director on behalf of Town Hall and our partner bookseller, University Bookstore. We're right over here. It's my pleasure to welcome you to tonight's event with Mary Beard. It's part of the Civics Series, which is brought to you from support from Boeing, the True Brown Foundation, Real Networks Foundation, with a media sponsorship from KUOWFM. Yeah. Um, It's also brought to you by the members who are in the audience tonight. Uh, Because of members to Town Hall, that's why we get into events like this in Seattle for only $5. Almost 400 events a year, as a matter of fact. So if you like Town Hall uh, and you're not a member, there is a membership table downstairs. You can find out what it means to become one. And it's not all that frightening at all. In fact, you get into some really cool stuff. So explore that. Mary Beard is a professor of classics at Cambridge University, where she specializes in ancient history, classical art, and archaeology. She's also the classics editor of the Times Literary Supplement and her own and a regular contributor to the New York Review of Books. Her own books include the best-selling book, The Fires of Vesuvius and Pompeii, The Life of a Roman Town, which later served as the basis for a 2010 BBC documentary. And her newest book is titled SPQR, A History of Ancient Rome. She's also a popular blogger, a television personality, and she's been involved with a number of programs for the BBC, including Meet the Romans with Mary Beard, Question Time, and Jamie's Dream School. Please join me in welcoming Mary Beard. Thanks very much for coming, everybody, and it's great to be back in Seattle. Um, But I'm going to talk about Rome, uh, where I first went um, over 40 years ago now, in 1973. And I still remember that back then, one of the things that struck me most vividly were not the ancient remains that I was supposed to be studying or the Renaissance art, but (laughs) the fact that still stamped on every manhole cover and on every lamppost and public trash can were the letters that 2,000 years earlier had stood as an abbreviation for the ancient Roman state itself. S-P-Q-R, Senatus Populusque Romanus, the Senate and Roman people. Even now, and it was given, I have to confess, a little bit of a boost by Mussolini, but even now, it's the symbol and the logo of the modern city of Rome. And I think it's probably the longest-lasting acronym in the history of the world. Um... And I'm absolutely certain that if someone had said to me in 1973 that I would wind up almost half a century later having written a history of ancient Rome with exactly that title, I would never have believed them. And I'm here tonight to address, I suppose, the most obvious question that that Raises, I suppose to put it bluntly, um, why on earth do we need a new history of ancient Rome? Um, aren't there actually quite enough already? Um, I hope, I hope this evening I can show you 
that and why we do need to keep going back to Rome and to give you a little taste of what my version of that history is like um, and ending up with uh, a new discovery that I've made which um, I made too late to get into the book. Now, the first reason that we need a new history of Rome is a very, very simple one. That is, new things about the ancient world are being discovered all the time. And ancient Rome is changing in some very unexpected ways that a historian writing 50 years ago, let alone Gibbon in the 18th century, writing his decline and fall, ways that they could never have imagined. And that's often now, not always, but it's often through the appliance of modern science to the ancient world. And one of my favourite examples of this is the material that is coming up right now from the Greenland ice cap, where in deep borings through the ice cap, scientists are bringing up cores of ice which still contain the analysable traces of pollution left by Roman industrial processes at a level that wasn't matched until about 200 years ago. Now, I'm afraid I can't show you a picture of one of these cores themselves, and I expect if you think about it, uh, you probably already have guessed that they are a little more complicated than just kind of bringing up this tube of ice and looking for the little black bits. Um, but here is one of the fridges in Utrecht in which they're kept. Um, uh, there's one of uh, my colleagues trying to get one out, actually. Uh, if you say, where did that pollution come from? The answer is, we don't fully know, but the best guess is that it's stuff which is getting into the atmosphere from the Roman silver mines in Spain, probably. Uh, Spain was the place uh, which basically bankrolled the um, metal production of the Roman Empire. What I can show you, though, is one of the skulls from Roman Britain, which is the subject of some equally cutting-edge science. In this case, science which is beginning to help us in a way we couldn't ever do before, track the migration and the movement of people in the Roman Empire. Now, we have had tantalising glimpses of that in the past, often glimpses of people's movement from tombstones concerning individuals recorded on their tombstones. And this, um, from the north of Britain, not far from Hadrian's Wall, is one of the most intriguing little glimpses of that. First sight, there's not anything very special about this tombstone. It's the memorial to a woman. And she's sitting there with a treasure chest at her feet uh, and she's got her woolwork on her lap. Um, it's not the kind of tombstone that would make anybody stop much if they passed her in the museum, but uh, partly because some sad place she had her face all bashed out. You'd probably just kind of leave her on one side, but the text underneath her uh, describes her life story and tells something which is actually rather more unexpected than you might think. It explains that she was a woman called Regina. I suppose we translate that Queenie. And she wasn't born herself near Hadrian's Wall. She came from the south of the country, a couple of hundred miles from where she died. It explains that she'd been a slave and that she had later been freed from slavery and married a man called Barates, who came from even further away, who came from Palmyra in Syria. And Barates is putting this memorial up to her and commemorating her both in Latin and underneath 
in his native Aramaic. Uh, And I'm going to point out in a minute, just by walking over, how he really, really does boast about where he comes from. The biggest word in this is palmyrenus. Now, that tombstone and that little life story and that marriage um, raises all kinds of questions, like what on earth was Barates doing in Britain thousands of miles away from Palmyra? How on earth had he hitched up with Queenie? Um, Had he once, and this is my guess, my guess is that he'd once been her owner and had freed her and then married her. And then, just to be more speculative, I mean, what language do we think they spoke at home? Um, And even more speculative, I think, here we are up in the north of Britain. Did they look odd when they stepped out together uh, in South Shields, which is where they came from, a rather cold northern climate? Um, Did people say, oh, that's that odd couple from Syria? (laughs) Or did they look perfectly normal? Now, it's a fun tombstone, but... And it raises all those kind of questions, but it's very individual. Um, And it's just one example that we can point to of mobility of people within the Roman Empire. But it's that kind of mobility that we're beginning now to be able to track more widely through particularly the analysis of skeletal remains, and in particular, the analysis of teeth. Back to the skull. Because adult teeth, and this is the same for us as it is for the Romans, adult teeth still contain the chemical traces of the environment where the person was living when those teeth were forming in the jaw. Now, the analysis we can do so far is not hugely precise, but you can tell, for example, in relation to this skull here, that the person must have grown up in a significantly warmer climate than the one in which they died. Now, you can't tell which warmer climate. It could be the south of France or it could be North Africa. But On the basis of traces like that, we're beginning to build up a picture of at least those people buried in urban cemeteries in Roman Britain. And we're getting, on the basis of that, a figure of something like 20% of those dying in Roman Britain were born and spent their early childhood in a place a long way away. Quite how long away, that's difficult to know. Now, that is actually an extraordinary degree of mobility for a pre-industrial community, 20%. You know, we're not talking about 10 miles down the road. We're talking about in a different climatic region. And that, in a sense, is giving uh, a wider background to people like Barates and Queenie and suggesting, in fact, that they wouldn't have looked so strange when they were walking out in South Shields. But I suppose my favourite new discovery is actually what you're looking on the screen now. It is, in fact, a large sewer, or more correctly, I think, a cesspit, in ancient Herculaneum, which is the neighbouring town to Pompeii, also destroyed in 79 AD. And it's a sewer underneath a small, ordinary block of Roman flats. And it is, quite literally, where everything from the lavatories above ended up entirely unmediated, I mean, the lavatories above this in the block of flats were basically just, you know, holes in the wall and everything came down into this and then decomposed. It is, in other words, it contained, when discovered, the remains of what went into the mouth 
and through the digestive tracts of the ordinary people living above. And there was bags and bags and bags and bags of it. Um, And it is currently, or at least a sample of bags, is currently being analysed in Oxford. And it's getting, I have to tell you, if you go and feel it, uh, you know, I thought, they said, oh, come and see it. I thought, oh, God, it's going to be really horrible kind of shitty stuff. In fact, it's like rather upmarket garden compost is what it feels like. (laughs) And better than garden compost, it's giving us enormous amounts of information about what the ordinary people in the flats above were, were actually eating and consuming. And it's taking us way away from the kind of fantasies of elaborate cookery and exotic delicacies that you find in Roman literature and also in modern movies about Rome. You know, things like, oh, Marcus, please pass the dormouse, you know, and it's, has it been stuffed with anchovy and honey? I do hope so, because that's my favourite way of doing it, that kind of stuff. Uh, If you go to this shit, which is what it is, the answer to what these people are consuming is actually what you'd probably expect. Loads of fruit, figs, pomegranates, eggs, pork, chicken and fish. And it's quite obvious that sea urchins were a particular favourite as there are lots of tiny little spikes in the mixture. I think must have been slightly painful, but um, I don't know. Now, those are all the kinds of, and say this is my favourite really, those are all the kind of new things or new ways uh, of getting fuller information about particularly the people of the ancient world than we've ever been able to get before. And as I say, I'm coming back uh, at the end of this talk to a rather different but also new discovery. But right now I should pause and say that in many ways new discoveries aren't the main reason that you need a new history of Rome, or at least they're only part of it. I think it goes without saying that history isn't simply about uncovering the past, finding out what happened, and moving on. History is about carrying on a conversation with the past. And the different questions that succeeding generations want to raise give different answers and make a different dialogue with the past, and they generate a new history that works and speaks to us. History, in other words, is always a work in progress. It can't be definitive forever. You always have to write it anew. To put it another way, it's not that we are better historians than our predecessors. We have different interests and priorities which make a new sort of history. And Roman history is a very obvious example of those changes. And one thing I think that nobody could miss, and one that's changed dramatically in the course of my lifetime, is how issues of Roman women, sexuality and gender have been treated. Uh, To be honest, when I was a student, women didn't really seem to have much of a role in the grand sweep of Roman historical narrative, which was largely about the policies, the aspirations, the deeds and the misdeeds of men and usually rich men. The only possible exception was in the family of the Roman emperor himself, where sometimes women were assumed to be the power, and usually the villainous power, behind the throne. And none was more villainous than Livia, the wife of the first emperor, Augustus, who as a jealous mother, is supposed to have got rid of everyone who stood in the way of her own son, Tiberius, rising to the throne to succeed Augustus. In the end, it was said that she even killed her husband, the emperor, by, according to some Roman writers, an extremely clever strategy. Augustus was a a wily old thing, and 
he was always on the lookout uh, for poisonous. And he had all the food that he ate at table carefully tasted by servants before he would touch it. So what Livia is said to have done, and one doesn't believe this for a minute, but what she's said to have done is painted poison on the figs as they grew on the tree in a palace garden because no one ever bothers to have tasted for poison fruit they pick directly from the tree. And Augustus was rather partial to figs from the tree. Um, And it um, eventually, or rather quite soon, uh, killed him. It made a a marvellous moment in that old TV series, I, Claudius, um, where Sean Phillips, as you see here, um, starred horribly as a very wicked Livia. And I, I remember uh, at this point, after she's you know, finally said goodbye to, in a very loving farewell to the dying husband that she's actually um, been poisoning, uh, Tiberius comes in to... Uh, make sure that there's a seamless transition of power and uh, Livia goes out but as she goes out she says to Tiberius oh by the way don't touch the figs (laughs) now it's partly the result of modern feminism I think that most historians now although uh, there are some exceptions don't take those stories uh, about Livia and the others quite so straight and quite so uncritically, even when they do go back to Roman writers themselves. I think we're now much more aware of the way that in highly patriarchal societies such as Rome, um, one could probably add the modern West to that, but Rome, um, male fantasies often project crime and wicked scheming onto women who happen to be close to the centre of power. Women and transgressive female ambition are often used as explanatory devices for the accidents of history. So so I don't think it's entirely gone away. There was really a touch of the Livia about the way that the British press used to treat Sherry Blair. You know, when they wanted to explain something that Blair had done, they'd say, hmm... Cherie's idea that was, particularly when they didn't like it. So when I'm writing now, I'm obviously telling a very different story because I've got that sense of patriarchal bias very much in mind. And if you read my SPQR, you'll find rather few female poisoners at work, certainly a lot fewer than you'd find in earlier books. And I suppose I should add at this point um, that part of, the, part of the point of my title, SPQR, Senatus Populusque Romanus, the Senate and Roman People, is an attempt, though I'm not going to go into this now, to rescue not only women from oblivion, but also the Roman people, i.e. the ordinary men and women of the street, uh, by parading the people alongside the Senate and trying to remind us all that Roman history isn't just about the toffs. But the big example with which I start the book is one with a particular modern resonance for us and particularly interestingly inflected in our own modern political debate. It's a famous moment in 63 BC. And centre stage in this moment is Marcus Tullius Cicero, one of the best-known Romans of them all, volumes and volumes of whose letters, speeches, philosophical essays, and even jokes we still possess. Now, in 63 BC, Cicero was consul, the annual chief elected official in Rome, And he believed that he had uncovered a terrorist plot to overthrow the government and burn the city down, led by a disgruntled aristocrat called Lucius Sergius Catalina, or usually just Catiline to us. Now, 
on screen is a 19th century painting which shows Cicero on the left in full flow addressing the Senate, denouncing a rather moody Catiline over the other side who's all alone because no one wants to sit by him, right? Appropriately enough, this 19th century painting was originally commissioned, uh, and it's still there, to be in one of the common rooms in the Italian Parliament building. So you have to imagine that Berlusconi used to have his cappuccino in front of this painting. It's a pity he didn't take the message, I think. Now, Cicero clearly here, as you can see, is in the middle of a rating. He's denouncing Catiline. And the speech that we have to imagine Cicero utters actually still survives as it's been copied and studied and practiced ever since. And it's still on school Latin syllabuses all over the Western world. It's known as the first Catilinarian speech. Cicero's first speech against Catiline, and he's telling Catiline to get out of town, and it starts with one of the most famous Latin quotes ever. Quousque tandem abutere Catilina patientia nostra. How long, Catiline, will you go on abusing our patience? That was a quote that um, schoolboys were learning um, from about 62 BC, I think. (laughs) Now, the upshot of the speech was that Catiline fled the city. Whether he was actually guilty as charged, we shall never know, but I don't think he was entirely innocent because he joined outside the city a makeshift army and he was later killed in battle against the official forces. Meanwhile, in Rome itself, Cicero rounded up the rest of those people that he believed to be involved in Catiline's plot and executed them without trial, claiming the justification and the protection for that of an early form of a Homeland Security Act. He came out, having overseen the executions, he came out to meet the public um, uh, and uttered to them just one chilling word, which also became very famous. He said, Wixere, which means they have lived, i.e. they're not living any longer, they're dead. Right? Wixere, they're dead. Now, to start with, after this, Cicero was heroized as saviour of the state. But soon, doubts began to grow about the precise legality of his actions, as one of the fundamental principles of Roman citizenship was that the citizen, unlike the non-citizen, was entitled to a fair and free trial and could not be arbitrarily punished by any state official, no matter what crime they were suspected of, without a fair trial. Cicero soon found himself in exile on the charge of having executed those citizens without due process. And as he left town, his house was demolished and a shrine of the goddess Liberty was erected on its site. In fact, he was allowed to come back within a few months, but his career never quite recovered. Now, that dilemma of Cicero versus Catiline was debated ever after in Rome. And it doesn't take much to see the echoes or the prequel here of our own debates on almost exactly the same unanswerable question. And I think it is unanswerable, which is how do you balance the security of the state against the rights of the individual citizen? And the problem of Cicero versus Catiline 
I think it's always, in my mind at least, when we now debate, as we do, issues about detention without trial, about Guantanamo Bay, or more recently, the killing by British forces of British citizens fighting for ISIS. And if you want a nice glimpse of quite the topicality still of Cicero's words, just take a look at these Hungarian protesters a couple of years ago. Um, They have got their banner out, and it's actually Cicero's slogan that they're waving in their protest. Quo usque tandem. Now, I think these guys are quite old, but it's still nice to see Cicero's very Latin, still part of, very visibly part of our own political debate, but always slightly meaning something slightly new to match present political circumstances. Now, of course, the whole notion and question of the rights of Roman citizenship and what a Roman citizen should be entitled to are not entirely a a recent problem for us. Um, But they're just always, I think, being re-inflected. So if you go back, famous American moment, you go back 50 years to the middle of the Cold War, and John F. Kennedy was exploiting the ideals of Roman citizenship, but for slightly different reasons, when he gave his Ich bin ein Berliner speech, which is what this is a photograph of. 2,000 years ago, he insisted, the proudest boast was Civis Romanus Sum, I am a Roman citizen. Today, in the world of freedom, the proudest boast is Ich bin ein Berliner. Uh, It's rightly one of the most famous speeches of the 20th century, um, but there is, I have to tell you, a little sting in the tail. What Kennedy didn't realise, or perhaps probably better, what his speechwriters didn't realise, was that the most famous and the most quotable use of that phrase, Civis Romanus Sum, in ancient Rome, was actually a decidedly awkward one. They were the words repeatedly cried out from the cross by an unfortunate and entirely innocent citizen on the island of Sicily who was being crucified by a rogue Roman governor. Even if guilty, Roman citizens were by law immune from the degrading punishment of crucifixion. So the man was desperately trying to claim his citizen rights in calling out, Civis Romanus Sum, Civis Romanus Sum, but it made not a blind bit of difference, and he died in agony. Now, I don't think that when Kennedy's speechwriters were looking for an ancient parallel to Ich bin ein Berliner, they realised what a nasty parallel they had found in this phrase, Kivis Romanus, from uh, uh, the sad cry of a man trying to get his citizen rights, but completely and ignominiously and painfully failing. But I want to spend the last part of this talk going back to a, the new kind of discoveries that I was talking about, and I want to share a rediscovery of my own. As I said, one that I made some time after SPQR had gone to press, and I think that it's another, though rather different, case of the sort of new things that turn up about Rome all the time and in the most unexpected of places. Just to set the context, one of the questions that I puzzle about in SPQR is a tricky question of when Rome became the Rome that we know. That's to say, the place starts off probably in the 9th or the 8th centuries BC, as a very small, very ordinary little place. It's a bit of a dump, actually, by the Tiber. 
When does it become the Rome that we know uh, with the institutions, the ways of doing things, and the expansionist tendencies that we now think of as Roman? When, if you like, does it become SPQR? Now, I'm not going to give away all the answers to that, um, but it won't spoil the read of the book, I think, if I say that I'm pretty clear that the really key formative, or perhaps you might say transformative period, is not until the 4th century BC. That's four centuries into the city's history. To put it another way, Rome spent 400 years being a dump before it became the Rome that we know. And at the same time, alongside that, I'm pretty clear that the first Romans that we encounter, who are more historical than mythical, because you know, Romulus is an exciting character, but he certainly never existed, right? Um, the first Romans that we encounter who are historical characters, and certainly the ones that we have direct primary evidence for, because Latin literature is rather slow off the ground, they lived around the turn of the 4th and 3rd century BC. So the history of Rome, in the modern sense of history, you could almost say starts in the 4th to 3rd centuries BC. And the first man of all, who turns out to be quite a hero in my first chapter, the first man of all we can get any direct contemporary account of is a guy from one of the most prominent families in Rome, a man called Scipio Barbatus, which means Scipio Longbeard or Scipio Beardy. And that's why I like him, I think. Um, he was consul, main magistrate in the city, in 298 BC, when Rome was beginning to get, in fact had got, quite a lot of control over the Italian peninsula, and hadn't quite yet started to expand overseas. Now, Scipio Barbatus' descendants, men like Scipio Africanus and Scipio Aemilianus, went on to be some of the most successful, or bloodstained, if you prefer it that way, Roman conquerors of all. Um, it was Africanus and Aemilianus who finally kind of did for Hannibal. But Barbatus is 100 and so years before them, 100 and 200 years, um, and the ancestor of the family. Now, almost all the traces, I'm going to show you some in a minute, that we can find of Scipio Barbatus look very archaic. And they would have looked very archaic and old-fashioned to later Romans too. But at the time, he was a hugely innovative representative of the new Rome, the Rome that we have now come familiar with. Among other things, he was the first to build himself a big family tomb on the first big road that was ever built out of the city, the Appian Way. And this is um, Piranesi's fantastically imaginative version of that tomb from the late 18th century. You can, in fact, still visit it, that's what it looks like now uh, from the inside. And that sits uh, slightly down at heel exterior with a friend of mine texting in front of it. <laughs> and this, you see what I mean about archaic. This is the tomb of Barbatus himself, the sarcophagus of Barbatus himself. And inscribed on its facade is what is effectively the first mini biography of any Roman to have survived. Uh, and it's extraordinarily revealing of the ideology of this period. We don't know exactly when Barbatus died, but a good guess would be about uh, the 280s. So it's still 250 years before the assassination 
um, of Julius Caesar. And you've got here on the screen the words which I think speak for themselves. Gives Cornelius Lucius Scipio Barbatus. It gives his name. It gives his father's name. Um, it says that he was brave and wise. Um, it says he's a, this is quite odd. We don't think about the Romans in these terms, really. His, his appearance was equal to his virtue. Um, he looked good. Um, he cut a dash. Um, uh, then it gives his offices. He was consul, censor, and edile, three offices amongst you. And then here's something where we suddenly see Rome in all its glory. He captured Tarazio, he captured Kizana and Samnium. He subdued all Lucania and took hostages, right? So you have there, um, in a sense, the first surviving biography of any Roman with already all those kind of distinctively Roman ideological chords very clearly uh, on the table. And I think it means, you can see what I mean, I think, when you say that by this point, Romans have become Roman, right? And there's nothing like this before. But there's another story here too that I've been tracking down over the last few months and one that leads back right straight to Barbatus himself. And that's the story of the tombs uncovering in the late 18th century, that in 1780, to be precise. The excavation was something of a cause célèbre because it was sponsored by Pope Pius VI, who took all the stuff worth having back to the Vatican, raising a lot of questions about how come the church was disturbing the last resting place of the dead. So when you visit now, that sarcophagus of Barbatus that you see is actually a replica in the tomb, and the original sarcophagus is still in the Vatican Museum. Now, it's partly those arguments surrounding the rights and wrongs of the Pope's excavation here that gave the tomb huge, really huge fame in the 19th century and made it what it certainly isn't now, which is a tourist hotspot in the city. Uh, in fact, so much a kind of tourist hotspot is that you find replicas of Barbatus's coffin cropping up in all kinds of unlikely places. Here's one in Highgate Cemetery, North London, uh, here's one in Laurel Hill, Philadelphia. It's the last resting place of Commodore Isaac Hull. And if you go to the Protestant cemetery in Rome, you find no fewer than nine of them, not quite all lined up in a row, but almost. And just suppose you didn't actually fancy being buried in one, you could always turn Scipio's tomb into what every 19th century desk needed, which is a Scipio Barbatus inkwell. <laughs> what you do is you take the little top off, and there you've got uh, the little pots underneath where you keep the ink and the nibs. I bought that in an auction in Cambridge about a year ago. <laughs> um, but it doesn't take long to see that there's another question lurking here. If the Pope took the coffin of Barbatus off to the Vatican, what actually happened to Barbatus's mortal remains? People were worried about disturbing the dead, but where had the dead gone? Now, we can answer that a bit. It seems that the bones themselves ended up in an elaborate villa garden in Padua after they'd been given by the Pope to a well-known Venetian, Senator Querini, who incorporated them into his rather posh philosophical garden at Altichiero. Now, that garden has been destroyed. Um, this is a drawing of the memorial which 
up till the late 19th century was said to have contained the bones of Scipio Barbatus transferred from his tomb. Um, Quite what those phallic things are on either side of it, I'm not quite sure. But anyway, they've all gone, and I've got no idea. I suspect I could get further if I tried a bit harder. I haven't got any closer to finding what happened to Barbatus's bones next. But there was something else. On his finger, Barbatus had been wearing a signet ring. Now, this didn't go to Padua with the bones, but the Pope gave it to a French scholar, Monsieur Louis Dutton, who had written about uh, the Scipio family. Dutton was actually a bit of a social climber and was very well in with the British aristocracy, and he later sold it or gave it to the English Lord Berkeley. And in the late 19th century, by a combination of sale and inheritance, Barbatus's ring was said to have ended up in the collections of the Dukes of Northumberland at Annick Castle. That's Annick Castle. If it looks familiar, it's because bits of Harry Potter and bits of Downton Abbey were filmed there. (laughs) After it's got to Annick, the trail goes cold and it's not mentioned again. I decided it was worth an email. So I sent an email to the Duke's administration at Annick. Uh, though I didn't really imagine that it would still be there. But after a certain kind of ducal delay, I got an email back to say that the ring was indeed still in their possession, and here it is. That is the ring that Barbatus was wearing in his tomb. It's plain gold, And appropriately enough for the military ambitions of the Scipio family and someone who conquered all Lucania and took hostages, it has the figure of victory as its emblem. But for me, I have to say, there is a bit more of a special thrill. I think this counts as the only bit of Roman jewellery that we can match up with a known historical Roman owner. It's the only ring with a famous Roman name attached to it. And where does it turn up? In a British medieval castle. Now, that was a few months ago, and you'll be saying, haven't I actually driven up to see it? It's only about three hours' drive away. And I'm embarrassed, I think, to say that I haven't. Um, not, I think, or I hope, not because I'm too lazy. I think it's more because I'm a bit too excited about it, in a way. Uh, you know, and I've kind of gone through this in my head, and I think, think how cross I'm going to be if they won't let me try it on. You know, <laughs> one, thing I, one thing I want to do is to put Scipio Barbatus's ring on my finger, and I don't really want to know they're not going to let me. Uh, But one thing is for sure, that if my um, SPQR is lucky enough to get a full second edition, this ring is going to play a big part in the story. And meanwhile, you have had a sneak preview of it. So thank you very much. And we're now, I hope, we're now allowed questions, and I'm going to be terribly disappointed if there aren't any having come all this way. I'm not a historian, so could you just tell us where Teresia, Cisana, Samnium, and Lucania uh, are today? They're not very far from Rome. Um, Samnium is the area where um, the... This isn't going to help very much. The Samnites came from. Um, okay. I, I think... Um, we're in a radius of 100, 150 miles of Rome, and I don't think we know precisely where uh, Theresia and Kizana are. I mean, there's another kind of slight um, extra story here, 
which is there's an awful lot of boasting about not very much, <laughs> I think. This is, not, this is not like saying he conquered Greece. You know? Were those among the earliest Roman uh, conquests? Sorry. Were those among the earliest Roman conquests as they expanded around the Mediterranean? We, yes, we have to assume that. But if you were to go and look at the main narratives of Roman history, um, you wouldn't find um, the playing any part, really. <laughs> now, you might say how interesting that is because you've got this guy, uh, and in his family, uh, this is, this is, these are his achievements. And it gives you a different version from what you'd find, say, in the historian Livy. I suspect that they're making a lot out of quite little. You know. who, uh, who built the Appian Way, and when? Um, that was built, built by a guy called Appius Claudius at exactly this time. Oh. And it's, that's one of the reasons that the, all these things seem to come together. Um, you know, the first big road. You know, we all know that Romans build roads. It's the first big road. We all know those pictures of the Appian Way with tombs stretching along. Scipio, you know, puts his tomb right there. This is, this is the moment when all that's happening. Um. I've been uh, watching the uh, BBC Rome series and also uh, dipping into Plutarch and Shakespeare. And in this election season, it's pretty terrifying to see the uh, uh, stories of uh, the uh, ordinary legionnaires going home to find they're impoverished because their conquests have yielded all these low-wage people who are now taking their their jobs. And... uh, uh, they they rush to the uh, whichever uh, demagogue is going to offer them some easy solution, and the uh, the Senate meanwhile is uh, showing no interest in doing anything for the lower classes, and the uh, uh, the um, so there are all these parallels, and uh, there doesn't seem to be any uh, any way out. Is there are there any indications that Rome could have taken another direction if there were any? Uh, uh, Detours that would help uh, I, us in this era. I think it's um, it's terribly tempting to compare our world to the Romans, and you've just done it um, uh, very elegantly. Um, I think I'd also say it's very dangerous to imagine that the Romans offer any solution. I think the the Romans, I think, help us see some things about ourselves that we might not have seen, but I don't think they've got the answer. um, I tell you, journalists, when they want a a quick story, always want to know, what what is Roman history telling us about? Can can the Romans tell us why we shouldn't have invaded Iraq or something like that? They love that one. How did Trajan get on in Iraq? And you say, look, there are all kinds of reasons why we might not or might ought to have invaded Iraq. What the Romans did there is entirely irrelevant. (laughs) So I am resisting also telling which emperor I think Trump is most like. (laughs) So my, que- my question is um, actually about George W. Bush. <laughs> and um, right after he became president, he did a tax rebate for, for people in 2001. And I've long wondered if there was a Roman emperor he was like. <laughs> the Roman emperor gives tax rebate. Ro- Roman emperors are almost always populist. Um, that this kind of about three things that a Roman emperor should do, basically established at the very beginning of the Roman Empire by Augustus. You've got to conquer things. A Roman emperor needs to say, I'm a conquering hero. So even if you're dodgy old Claudius, who kind of comes to the throne utterly unexpectedly, you've got to go and conquer the completely useless province of Britain in order to say that you've conquered something. Uh, You've got also to to be nice to the Senate. We're going to have four here. You've got to build. You've got to build like crazy to say, I am leaving my mark on the Roman world. 
and you've got to be generous to the poor. Now, it usually comes not in the form of tax rebate, it comes in the form of throwing money at them, sometimes quite literally. Oh, and one of the things that Caligula, um, not usually thought of as a good emperor, but he had his occasional moments, one of the things he's supposed to have done is gone up to a roof of a building in the forum and literally thrown coins to the people. So, you know, there is no Roman emperor was not a populist. Thank you. Otherwise they'd get, go the way of, you know, what happens to people who aren't. Did Romans have some unusual fascination with death and the process of dying? Did, I, I don't think the Romans had any more fascination with death and the process of dying than, than many other later cultures. Um, what is the case, however, is that their monuments to death or to the dead um, are some of the most important survivals from the Roman world. So you get, you, you get a very, very strong sense that death is ever-present in the Roman world because tombs are there for us to look at. And the other thing that I've found quite interesting is that uh, it's in death and epitaphs and actually relatively humble tombs that you get closest to some of the voices of the ordinary people because ordinary people in Rome don't write Latin literature. But there's a whole series of wonderful tombstones, not of the very poorest, but of yeah, the ordinary, where uh, you get some kind of sense in what they choose to say about themselves or their sons and daughters choose to say about them. Of that sort of um, you know, feisty um, unbatterability of the Roman plebs, you know, things saying, well, I'm not so sad I'm dead. At least I won't have to pay the rent to that awful rent collector any longer. You know, it's a kind of sardonic humour uh, about the, the, the tombs of uh, uh, the epitaphs of of ordinary Romans that I think is very attractive, actually, and you know takes us takes us to um, what you know the kind of humour you'd have found in a Roman bar, I guess. Hi, um, I was curious about the twenty percent of Britons who uh, were born elsewhere, and was that in any way a skewed sample set because of the way they were dis? It may well be a skewed sample set. Um, I think the, the major skewing of it is, uh, the, is the clash between the rural population and the urban population. So we, there are very, very few rural burial remains. I mean, there might have been, we don't find them because you don't know where to look, really. Um, so there are very, very few chance finds. What you're getting is, to be strictly accurate, I think, is I think you are getting a high level of mobility amongst the urban dweller. Now, if you go to the peasant, my suspicion is that it wouldn't be the same. Now, you know, Queenie doesn't... I doubt that her background's urban, um, and she ends up, well, she comes from the south and ends up in the north. But I think what we're seeing is the split between an urban and a rural population, probably. And would there be um, an economic, a heavy economic element as well? Uh, in there, there might be a heavy economic element. You, these come l not entirely, but largely without any epitaph. So... One possibility, and I think because of where this sample is, not a, this isn't a real problem, but some of them might be Roman officials. Um, now, when we say Roman officials in Roman Britain, I mean, we have a very uh, kind of slightly old-fashioned view that you you know, the kind of books that I learnt at school of, you know, poor, sad Romans from the lovely, you know, from lovely Italy in the sun coming to ghastly Britain. Now, there is very, very little sign of 
any of very many Italians actually ending up in Roman Britain. One of the things, one of the ways the Rome, Roman Empire works is that other provincials are used to, to administer adjacent provinces. So most of the Romans in Britain are probably actually Germans um, or Belgians. <laughs> so that complicates it still further. Um, but you're right, the, uh, this is terribly early days as well. Terribly, it's, terribly, it's terribly early days in the, the analysis of these. Uh, and so, you know, yes. Thank you. Yes. We have found two sub-Saharan Africans, though, <coughs> which is amazing. <laughs> Who's next? Oh, yes, uh, yes uh, speaking of death, uh, could you elaborate a little on the, uh, the application of the different traditions of uh, burial and cremation? Um, one of the biggest one of the biggest puzzles in Roman history is what is how to explain changes over time in uh, in patterns of disposal of body and very very broadly speaking uh, Rome goes from cremation in the very earliest time, uh, to cremation and inhumation, but largely cremation running parallel, to in about the second or third century AD, um, uh, to a, a, a turn to inhumation. Why the, the, the puzzling one? has always been the turn in the second or third century to inhumation. Because people have often wanted to say there must be something to do with Christianity in that. That what we've got is Christianity opting for inhumation, not cremation. Um, the problem is that the remains don't suggest that it was predominantly Christians who were first opting for for inhumation. The Scipio family is a very peculiar one because very unusually they bury, they inhumate throughout the whole period. Um, but there's been a tremendous lot of effort to try to tie in the different patterns of disposal to different ideology and different religion and it's never quite worked. It's a puzzle. Two more. Two more. Oh, that's good. We've got two. Perfect. She's been waiting longer. Okay, I'll go. Uh, first, it was a pleasure to hear you speak. Um, so I am a PhD candidate at the UW studying the Renaissance. And in my own research, I've been a real big advocate for the value of using film as a tool for doing history. And that's something I'm going to be doing in my dissertation, which I'm really excited about. Um, so just as someone that's been very successful in both mediums, I wondered um, if you had any kind of thoughts on what are the major challenges and differences between writing about the past and then presenting it on TV? Um, I think when you present the past on TV, you get a bigger audience than anything you ever write. And people often say, and particularly to me, they say, gosh, it must be really different. It must be really, really different um, doing a television programme um, from... Um, either writing a book or particularly from teaching your undergraduates in, in Cambridge. And for me, the bottom line is it's not all that different. Or that's to say, what I'm wanting to get over on telly is exactly the same points that I want to get into the heads of my undergraduates. Now, I might choose a different route to do that and... I would make sure that um, I didn't blind them with science like Kizana and Lucania and all those place names that I didn't explain. Um, but ultimately, um, I'm the, the arguments are the same, even though the rhetoric of the argument might be different. I mean, I think that uh, this might sound insulting, it's not meant to be, um, that the 
audience for telly is much more ignorant than my students or than my book readers, but it's not less intelligent. So uh, the kind of watchword that we have is that we're speaking to the intelligent ignorant. I will use that one. <laughs> and we're not talking down to them, therefore. But we're not assuming that they know. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. I'm going to finish off on a somewhat taboo topic. Uh, so I know that infanticide in Roman Britain has been quite a hot-button topic in bioarchaeology, at least from my perspective recently, well, with Becky Gowan claiming that it wasn't as common as Simon Mays claims it was. And I'd like your perspective, if you may. I think, again, it's one of those things which have gone round and round and round, you know, that you know, how often, I mean, put it crudely, how far did Roman families use infanticide as a method of contra contraception, which is basically what it is. You know, so how far do you say, I've got a baby I don't want, so I am going to throw it away? Now, I don't know... I don't know the answer to that. I mean, and I don't see... I mean, I can see the arguments for both high levels and low levels, but I don't see the evidence for it. I mean, so you'll get some people going around saying, hmm, source of slaves, really difficult. Well, I know where the slaves... I know there must have been a lot that came from infanticide because they were thrown out on the rubbish tip and then taken in, and that's how we're managing to... Now, could be true, but there's, there's simply... We, we know that infanticide took place. Absolutely no doubt about that. But fixing the level of it, I think, is just, you know, a nightmare. <laughs> a nightmare, I don't know. So I really don't know. I mean, I think it's... You know, it is absolutely clear that the crime of infanticide, in our terms, was not seen as such in the same way in any period of the Roman Empire and the Roman Republic. And I think that's interesting, and it relates to all kinds of different views about life, humanity, the human body. You know, when, do, when does a baby become a person that has rights? Well, um, in Rome, it isn't when it emerges from the mother's body. It's when it's accepted to be a person that has rights. But whether it happened very often, God only knows, honestly. <laughs> Sorry. It's all right, thank you. It's the best I can do. It's I don't fine. know. Sometimes you have to say, it's the only thing you have to say in film, sometimes you have to say, I don't know. <laughs> thank, thank you. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Mary Beard is a classics professor at Cambridge and the author of SPQR, A History of Ancient Rome. She spoke at Town Hall Seattle on September 19th. Thanks again to Sonia Harris for our recording. Tune in again soon. Music